Hi everyone, this is Hester. For your safety, please stay seated with your seatbelt fastened nice and tight while you ride. Be sure to watch your children and please keep your hands, arms, feet and legs inside your dinosaur. Please put loose items in the pouch in front of you and securely buckle seatbelts. This is Seeker. Listen up. We've got to get in, grab the iguanodon, and get out before that asteroid hits. Let's roll. W Radio. Your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show. Your Walt Disney World Information Station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 259 for the week of January 29th, 2012. We're going back in time this week in more ways than one as we take a trip aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to the Cretaceous period and the origins of dinosaur in Disney's Animal Kingdom. In this DSI Disney Scene Investigation, We'll look at the attraction's beginnings as Countdown to Extinction and discuss its story, place in Disney's Animal Kingdom, details, and future. I have some more information about our WDW Radio 5th Anniversary Celebration coming up next month before I play more of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Since I started podcasting back in 2005 and even before, if you go back to some of my early articles, I've always expressed my love and frustration with the underappreciation of Disney's Animal Kingdom. And I've done in-depth segments on the story of Chester and Hester and their dino-rama, pointing out some of the intricate details and storylines and why it's designed the way it is. I also did an entire show on why not only isn't Disney's Animal Kingdom a half-day park, but in fact can and should be enjoyed, explored, and savored over two days instead. And I think the park has so many layers to it, from its theme and message to its intricately woven storylines, to its educational and entertaining shows and attractions, and even its share of true e-ticket experiences. And this week, we're going to take a look at just one of those in a part DSI, Disney Scene Investigation, part Wayback Machine, literally, as we explore Countdown to Extinction, or as you kids call it today, Dinosaur. And joining me once again is the Hester to my Chester, the Grant Seeker to my Dr. Marsh, Ryan Wilson from the Main Street Gazette. Welcome back, buddy. It's always great to be here. It is. Uh, it's great to have you back. And I want to start off first by asking you a question, which is, do you agree with what I said about Disney's Animal Kingdom sort of being uh, an underappreciated park in terms of details and stories that maybe people don't see or understand? 
Oh, absolutely. It's something that I think on the Gazette I've talked about time and again, just trying to get people to understand all the little things to see. You know, Take time to look at the animals. Take time to take in the shows. There's so many layers there that are just go unexplored. You know, People hit one, two, three attractions and they're out the gate. And, you know, people talk about it again, you know, the park as a whole uh, as a half day park, which I don't think it is because I think it's supposed to be enjoyed and experienced differently than, for example, you do a Magic Kingdom. But when they talk about things like Chester and Hester or even Dino Land, you know, they, they sort of talk about it as uh, I've heard everything from the redheaded stepchild to an afterthought to it just doesn't really fit in Disney's Animal Kingdom. And that's part of the reason why sometimes I like to focus on it, because there is so much there, especially when it comes to stories. Because, you know, for a park that's so rich in beauty and theming, Dinoland, people say it's kind of devoid of that that sort of magic that Imagineering puts into it. Um, it's, they, you know, they talk about um, Chester and Hester as sort of a carnival midway and not in a good way. And I think there is a lot to understand and appreciate. And the more you sort of dig down a little bit deeper, the more you can appreciate and enjoy not just the land as a whole, but the attractions themselves. I agree. And you see, you do. You see it in everything in that land. Yes, they may look like off the rack rides, but look at the fact that they put it on a parking lot. You know, they create a parking lot area to put it in like it was a sideshow. It's not even, you know, I grew up in Florida and walking down that street, walking down, you know, US 498. It looks like old Florida to me. It looks like the back areas of Florida where I grew up. There's a whole, and there's just so many different layers there with the restaurant and restaurantosaurus and the the boneyard that that people don't tend to appreciate. And it's one of those things I've been you know trying to preach against for a long time now. Yeah, and and look, everything that you see in Walt Disney World, it all starts with story, and there is no exception here. And I think before we sort of go back and maybe look at the the history of a dinosaur and countdown to extinction. Let's look sort of at the attraction and the story today and how it sort of fits into this overall theming of Dino Land as a whole, which kind of is really broken down into separate themes and areas. Sort of the, there's the the play area for the kids. There was that there's that tourist trap, you know, kitschy kind of Chester and Hester. And then there's this whole Dino Institute story, which is sort of about the sort of the serious science of dinosaur research and archaeology right and you can see where the lines get get bleeding and you know from one another with the grad students who are kind of the more jokers kind of the the more laid back with the restaurant which was the first dino institute and then the very more structured when you get to see helen marsh and grant seeker in the dino institute and then on the flip side you have the people who take nothing seriously with chester and hester over with their old roadside gas station now it's a you know, roadside attraction, they want to bring in the people, they don't care how gaudy it is. And, you know, when we talk sometimes about the stories, whether it's in the Magic Kingdom or at an attraction, whatever it might be, oftentimes people will say, well, well, how do you know, you know, where do you find that? There is no sort of great big book of Imagineering that's laid out somewhere, and there's not a plaque uh, at the confectionery telling the story. But here in Dino Land, that detailed story is sort of woven together intricately, but there's a lot of, of signs indicating to what that is, how you can put it together uh, if you know where to look. And that's what we want to do is kind of sort of help you put that together by helping to maybe establish at the beginning what the legend of this Dino Institute, Institute is and how it led to the creation of the museum that actually now houses uh, Dinosaur. 
Right, and and there are actual plaques in Dinoland. You you start one with the Olden Gate Bridge telling you about the Brachiosaurus and how he came to be there. You have them all throughout the Cretaceous Trail. There's a great billboard, uh, bulletin board in the middle of the land that te- that gives you a wealth of information on what to look for and where. And quick aside, what percentage of listeners do you actually think have taken the time and wandered through and read those plaques on the or even know where? the Cretaceous Trail really is? Probably I, probably not as many <laughs> as I would like. Um, you know, and I don't even, I'm not even sure how many people at Disney know it's there because the map is still, the map on the bulletin board is still count, listing it as Countdown to Extinction and we have Dinosaur Jubilee instead of Dino-Rama. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. If you look, and again, is take your time, and I know a lot of people want to just get from attraction to attraction, I understand, but the more times you go... When you start looking in things like car windows and, and on bulletin boards and little places tucked in and out of Dinoland, you can really get a sense of this the story about these serious researchers and some of their notes and books and little psych eggs they have. And again, those students that are sort of a little bit more pranksters sort of add Osaurus to everything that they put in. <laughs> and it's very funny, too. I mean, there's a lot of it that you can really sort of enjoy even without trying to sort of put this whole story together. Yeah, definitely. And Dino Land is one of those lands that I think if you walk through it, you have to stop and look at those things because nothing is there willy-nilly. Everything has a reason to be there, and they want you to explore it, and they want you to get these story threads and kind of make your own way through this this narrative they've created. And I want to rehash uh, the, the discussion about Chester and Hester. I'll, I'll link in this week's show notes to an earlier podcast we did where we did sort of point out the history of it. Uh, we talk about a lot of the great stuff that adorns the walls and the ceilings of the dinosaur treasure shop and how it came to be. But today I really want to focus on the Dino Institute and the attraction inside. Again, I refer to it as Countdown to Extinction, the original name. It certainly now is known as Dinosaur. But this too, look, it's it's just like Main Street, you know, uh, Ryan. It's like Frontierland. There's a story that's associated with what this is. And like you said, the Dino Institute, this research facility, outgrew the old fishing lodge, which is now Restaurantosaurus, and they created this museum-like building away from everything else. Notice it's sort of tucked away from where the dormitories and uh, Chester and Hester would be, tucked away in the back. And it is sort of meant to be a research institute uh, and, and kind of a museum exhibit now. Right, that quaint old wing where they have all the museum exhibits. Um, but it is. You, you, as you approach it, it has a very stately-looking entrance. It's, it starts off with a giant uh, T-Rex fossil there. They, they're trying to get you ensconced in, in, in this very academic, very serious element as opposed to some of the goofy and funny and you know half-hearted attempts on the other side of the street. And just like the rest of Disney's Animal Kingdom, there is an educational aspect to it. If you go through, you'll see fossil exhibits. And look, my son is in, you know, he's six years old. So obviously he loves nothing but Star Wars and dinosaurs. So <laughs> there's, you know, life-size casts of real dinosaur skeletons. So you can sort of take through as if you really were going to sort of a, a natural history museum. Like you said, there's the the Carnotaurus skeleton. And there's a lot of details and plaques there. And their sort of discussion about their theories about how and why the dinosaurs became extinct. And when you get into that first big room with the shooting asteroid, uh, there's a lot to be learned and enjoyed there as well. 
Absolutely. I just brought my mom for the first time to Animal Kingdom last month, and I had to actually usher her along because these are legitimate exhibits. There is stuff to be to be gained here, to be gleaned. And she kept wanting to stop, and I'm like, no, no, we got to keep the line moving. We got to keep moving a little bit more. And it's it's cool because if you follow the storyline, you're then sort of brought, uh, you're sort of broken down into groups, and you go into the briefing room where you sort of see the the pre-show with, with Doctor Marsh, and if you if you pay close attention to what you're actually doing, you'll see that there's uh, the Dino Institute shield is there, and it talks about exploration, excavation, and exaltation. And you're actually going down the steps. If you look carefully, you're really sort of in an underground research facility. And if you look carefully, you'll see that the walls are surrounded by uh, images of, of lava, as if you really are going underground. Right, and they and it's very much of a bunker kind of a feeling. It's gray concrete everywhere. There's big bold letterings. You know, it for those of you for those who haven't been under, it's almost like oh look, dinosaur has its own utilidors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there's great details in here as well, too, especially for those who are love the super geeky details. So a lot Us. of people, I'm sure, know if you look up, you'll see there's red, uh, white and yellow pipes up on top that have um, sort of cryptic symbols on them. They are the uh, chemical compositions of ketchup, mustard and mayonnaise. That's an old tribute to McDonald's, who was the original sponsor when Countdown to Extinction opened. Right. It was one of the first times, not only was the attraction sponsored by McDonald's, but the whole land was sponsored by McDonald's. And then you have other great details like the wall where you're in sector CTX-WDI-AK98, which is Countdown to Extinction, Walt Disney Imagineering, and Animal Kingdom 1998, which is when it opened. Right. And, and that change that took place you know, would switch from Countdown to Extinction or CTX to Dinosaur took place in 2000. And it obviously was a very deliberate reason for it, not just because of, of changing with things with McDonald's, but because of the film that came out, the Dinosaur animated feature that came out on May 19th. They did make some of those changes. So with to the name of the attraction, to the dinosaur that you saw outside and a number of other locations inside as well. Right, they really want, you know, they put a plaque out front, named the Iguanodon, uh, Aladar, which is the lead character in Dinosaur. They took out the Styracosaurus. They really wanted you to feel like you had a connection to this character already while you were going back on it with the Time Rovers. But the interesting thing about this is it's not sort of the traditional retheming or creating of an attraction to directly tie in to a film. Because if you notice, the attraction never explicitly references the film itself. They don't even talk about Aladar as a character. I think it really was meant to be more of a companion to the film. So if you saw the film, you would get the references as opposed to, hey, you've ridden the attraction, now go see the movie. Absolutely. This was definitely kind of a hindsight is twenty twenty kind of thing. They had all these characters like, we're going we're gonna to fold this in, but it's not, they can work very well independently of one another. Yeah, and they've made some other changes too, and I think this was a great move on Disney's part because now that the film, now that the attraction was meant to tie into a film which was very much geared towards children, they did make some uh, changes to the attraction itself. So they use these enhanced motion vehicles. If you've been on Indiana Jones, the awesome Indiana Jones attraction out in Disneyland, it is that same type of vehicle, actually the exact same type of track, but what they did was they made the ride less scary. They made it less intense. Even the, the soundtrack 
itself was less intense. And if you remember back, Ryan, you used to hear like the roar of the Carnotaurus and the footsteps sort of running up behind you as though the Carnotaurus was chasing you. And now you don't really get that as much. So it's not as I mean, for some people, it still is scary. But I think for younger children, it's not quite as scary as it was when it first opened. We aren't going to mention who we know it's scary for. <laughs> There's um, many adults that do not find the attraction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, whereas my wife loves it. But you're right. They, dumb, they, they toned down this roar in the footprints. You, you can still hear it, but now it's very far off in the distance. They toned down some of the shaking. And it allowed them to actually decrease the height requirement so that younger, younger guests who were now – wanting to go see this because of their love for the movie had had a way to get on there sooner rather than later not just younger guests we can all ride now we can all enjoy the, the attraction <laughs> together <laughs> but you know you've you've been out to disneyland and i, I mentioned how, how it sort of uses not just the same uh emv that enhanced motion vehicle technology but literally like track for track in for inch for inch it is the identical track layout as temple of the forbidden eye the theming is different. The show building is different, but they seem like such very different attractions when you ride That's, them. Absolutely. I mean, you do. You, you really feel like you're running around in the middle of a jungle, or you're trying to cl- clamber over stairs in a lost temple. Uh, it, if if I didn't know, if I hadn't you know researched and read that they were the same track, you know, even ahead of time, and even knowing it, I still don't. I still don't feel like I'm going through. The same motions. It's a much different experience, which is fantastic, and I think a true testament to both attractions. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who have been to both coasts and would love for them to bring over Temple of Forbidden Eye, not caring at all if the attraction's exactly the same. And I don't know what it is about Indiana Jones. It seems like it's longer, even though the the attractions are both just over three minutes, about three minutes, ten seconds each. But I know when you get into that that main room. Uh, in Indiana Jones, when it sort of opens up like that, it's very, very breathtaking, as opposed to Dinosaur, which, again, has the dinosaurs and the jungles very much sort of uh, covering you and sort of wrapping you around uh, inside the vehicle. It definitely feels like a much more intimate setting when you're in Dinosaur. And I think one of the other things that makes Indiana Jones seem so much longer is the queue is it feels it. Well, it is so much longer and there are so many little little components that people have already picked up on. Because maybe they spend a little bit more time in Disneyland than they do in Animal Kingdom until they haven't quite got all these story details that we're giving them now. And do you think the, the, the attraction itself is somewhat overlooked? I mean, do you think a lot of people or is it just sort of the, the more hardcore nostalgic Disney fans look at Dinoland that way? And, I want, and I, the re- there's, a, there's a reason why I want to ask you because I do want to talk about sort of how Dinoland and this attraction came to be. I think it is. I think the park is is definitely overlooked. I think the land is overlooked, and dinosaur is kind of an out of the way attraction. You do have to go out, go actually seek it out. You're not going to stumble upon it. It's not going to come upon you as you're walking through. Um, but you know, I think it's one of those pieces that, like like you said, people do overlook, and it's a shame. It really is. Because I think the the genesis of this park and specifically this land. Is very interesting because obviously when the concept for Disney's Animal Kingdom was formed, and again, I've talked about this on past shows and as we looked at certain attractions or certain lands, we've talked about uh, this in a little bit more depth. I've also written a couple of articles for Celebrations Magazine where I really talk about the origin of Disney's Animal Kingdom. And obviously there was this idea for 
this, this, these educational opportunities for sort of meeting and getting to experience real animals. And then there was the mythical animals. And then there was this idea for dinosaurs. And this actually came directly from Michael Eisner. He wanted this, uh, this concept of a dino land. And he said, look, his quote was, lead with your cliches. I want a dino land called dino land. Uh, and, you know, you can't sort of mistake what this land really is. And again, the, the original concepts for what Disney's Animal Kingdom, how it was going to be laid out, this sort of change to that hub and spoke to a certain degree, went through a lot of different machinations. But one of the original ideas was for something called Safari Village at the center of the park. And that would actually have acted as a safari departure point. And from there, you could have taken a safari to Africa. You could have taken a safari over to Conservation Station. And you actually would have been able to take a safari into dino land and that's where this idea that sort of evolved into creating these individual villages came africa and asia uh rafiki's planet watch all these other uh places that came to be including dino land but eisner didn't really like that early idea for a dino safari so in summer of 1993 he said you know what scrap that idea take that budget and let's build this e-ticket attraction in Dino Land. Let's move it inside and let's make it really much more like a dinosaur encounter and change the effect so you never sort of really feel as though you're getting the same experience twice. Uh, and it's sort of very interesting how it evolved from sort of an outdoor safari into what we have today. And they took the ball and they ran with it. I mean, at the time when this attraction debuted, it had some of the it had the biggest animatronics, audio animatronics figures ever created. Their skin alone would, could weigh up to 500 pounds. And when they finally got them all finished, and some of them were 18, over 18 feet tall, you had Eisner come back in and look at them in this giant warehouse. There weren't even any of the foliage or any of the effects around, just these dinosaurs kind of ambling about. And he said, you know, and you have him saying, it's the first time I've ever been sorry they are extinct. And that's, and he, they had hit a home run with creating life-sized dinosaurs. And you know, it's funny because I think for some people, they, they look at Dino Land and I kind of put it sort of as the, as the, uh, the Mickey's Toontown Fair of Disney's Animal Kingdom, sort of off to the side. It doesn't, it's kind of different from everything else that's in there. But if you really think about it, the land and specifically the dinosaur attraction very much embraces the concepts and the philosophies of Disney's Animal Kingdom. That theme of the weakness of technology in the face of nature is sort of the overriding story of the dinosaur attraction itself. Absolutely. And it, it's you know almost a cautionary tale not to think that you have come to the top of this ladder and, and you have you know, dominion over everything in front of you. That, that nature can still come back and, and give you a, a whooping if you need it. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, the attraction itself, too, they used some familiar faces again at the time, starting off with uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. He is sort of the um, he's all over the place. He's the marquee Walt science Disney guy for Disney World. <laughs> he is everywhere from, you know, Disney Quest to to Animal Kingdom to pretty much anywhere you can find something science related. But it's great because I think he is a familiar face to kids. And, and it's definitely something that they can I think kids can relate to Bill Nye, the science guy, more than they can probably re relate to you know, Dr. Seeker and um, and Dr. Marsh. 
where we see the Huxtables, <laughs> right? <laughs> they see they see a very stuffy, uptight scientist, right? They don't probably know who Wallace Langham is, but we recognize right. him from his TV and his movie work. This is secret. Listen up. We've got to get in, grab the iguanodon, and get out before that asteroid hits. Let's roll. Um, but you're right. Bill Nye is definitely more. You know, he he also has that very more child friendly tone to him. So even if they don't know Bill Nye, he he still seems some, somewhat more accessible to them. Yeah. And do you uh, do you find that the do you think that kids get something from the attraction, or at least kids who can meet the height requirement, from an <laughs> educational point of view, or is it more of just a thrill ride for? Them? Or do you think the educational stuff gets lost when they're like, oh my god, a giant Carnotaurus is about to eat my head? I think it's you know talking about dinosaurs. They're like, oh, great dinosaurs! I I think some of the educational stuff on the front end gets lost. But I I I hope and I think what happens is on the backside they've seen these these giant beasts now. They want to go out and they want to learn more about them, which is where you have great opportunities in Dino Land with the Crustaceous Trail, with the Boneyard, and all these other things, um, which I really think help boost that that on the back end of the experience. And, you know, much to my son's dismay, do you know, originally it wasn't supposed to be a Carnotaurus. It originally, the plan was for a Tyrannosaurus Rex, which again, everybody sort of understands and knows. And like, again, my son just, it's sort of the <laughs> Superman of dinosaurs for him. But they had actually discovered the Carnotaurus mm-hmm. as Disney was planning the Countdown Extinction attraction. And because of that, they tied it into sort of that recent discovery. Oliaramus. <laughs> Raptor. Time to get serious. Locking autopilot on homing signal now. Hang on. I'm tracking a big dino on the stone. Could be ours. Computer, full stop. Identify. Carnotaurus. Definitely not on Right, and the, and and you can see they had the the inklings of the T Rex because they put you know dinosaur Sue out in the front, but they but they had this new discovery and they wanted to really stay on the cutting edge of you know paleontology at that point. Yeah, Disney actually made the Carnotaurus a little bit bigger, a little bit scarier than he normally was. He's a little bit larger than the the twenty five foot long that he probably should have been, and they actually again not knowing what the colors of the dinosaurs were. Instead of you making him sort of the, the tan or the browns or the greens that you normally see on dinosaurs, they made him red to make him look just a little bit more scary as if he wasn't scary enough. Right. And you had the cooling colors of, you know, our hero, the iguana on Aladar, who, as you finish up the attraction, has come back with you. He's on the security monitors. Dr. Seeker is going to go find him. And once upon a time that you could used to be able to get on Discovery Riverboats at the Safari Village or Discovery Island. Uh, and also in Asia, and as you went around these boats, there was an audio animatronic Aladar down by the river. Right, right, right. And it, and <laughs> and you had this great tie-in of oh, good, he got out of the facility, and now he's wandering around in our time. Um, but there was so much science that they had that they built in with you know, even the T Rex. The T Rex that we see now as we enter was actually helped put together on site with the they had the prep site. Which was in conjunction with the Field Museum in Chicago. There were two prep sites, one in Chicago, one in Animal Kingdom, where they had they had taken away the, all the stone and prepping all these bones from Sue, the the T Rex, which had been discovered in 1990, 
and was the most com- intact T-Rex discovered to that point. Yeah, and you know it's funny because as we're thinking about it, and I'm, and I'm thinking about the uh, attraction itself, and relating it to other attractions and and stories in Walt Disney World, it's kind of like the storyline is almost like it's the Star Tour, it's the prehistoric Star Tours because they've got this sort of very um, official, like you said, very serious research facility, but now they're going to open up this tour business. Like Star Tours is going to open up a tour business. Right. Time Rover Tours is now open to the public. This is going to be their tour business. And of course, things go horribly awry. Absolutely. And it, and it goes back to those little details we're talking about. Like on that bulletin board, there's a news clipping about Dr. Marsh buying the Chronotech technology for an undisclosed purpose at the time. <laughs> kind of leading us into this whole, we are going to take a trip somewhere. Yeah, and so, you know, is this is this what Eisner had set out to be? Is this the e-ticket or an e-ticket attraction still? I think so. I mean, my wife makes me go there, you know, first thing every trip, so it, it, it's definitely captured her imagination, and I don't even think she's that big of a fan of dinosaurs. <laughs> Has she ever seen the film? Has she ever seen? Oh, she's married to you. I'm sure you've made she, her sit she's, see she's seen it. I, well. It's been on. I'm not sure that she saw it. The Kindle may have had her attention at the time. But. <laughs> and so you being the uh, the Disney fan, would you if you were Imagineer for the day, would you would you bring over Indiana Jones Temple of the Forbidden Eye and put it somewhere else in Walt Disney World, even though it's the exact same track layout? I think so. I think because it's such a different experience. Yeah, there's some people clamoring for more Indiana Jones in the parks. It, it would give them what they want. My only my only fear would be that by bringing it over, you doom dinosaur to extinction. <laughs> Bottom cheek. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm here all week. Um, how much of the storyline do you think the average guest gets? And, and I ask you because, again, I talk about Walt Disney World in terms of layers of the onion. And I think on its most basic external layer, the attraction is meant to just be enjoyed as an attraction and a show and all these things with mom and dad and the two and a half kids. And then the more you come back and the more you start to sort of peel those layers back, that's when you can find out. That's when you can discover. And I think when you find out these, the storylines and the details and the more you look around, I think it enhances your appreciation and your understanding of the attraction. But how much of that storyline do you think the average guest gets, even though unlike a, a place like Main Street or Frontierland or Liberty Square, it very much is laid out in front of them on signs and on, uh, you know, some of the details in, in the queue and, and outside the attraction itself. I think I think that, you know, unless they're walking around with us, that they're, they're not getting <laughs> most of this story. Um, I mean, just walking around with with friends from the community, I've seen, you know, I've told them things and that they have no clue about. And these are people who, like us, dig into this. And so I think people get that it's a you know museum. They, they have this new technology. They go on the ride. They go back in time. They come back. But I think the overarching story of Dinoland is something that is lost on a great many people. So if I, if you are Imagineer for the day and you have unlimited budget and I say, okay, Ryan, Dinosaur is your project. What, if anything, would you do to change it? And it could, you could say nothing. You can say, listen, the attraction stands on its own you know, decades after it was, was, you know, and again, the change in, in 2000 was not a very big change. So right. what, if anything, would you change from it? Hmm. You know, I do. I believe it stands on its own. I think maybe, 
I, I'm wondering if maybe there's not more entertainment to bring to the land in order to tie all these pieces together. You know, have walk around character, you know, characters, I say characters, but grad students like Animal, like Jenny, who are all on these bulletin boards and in Restaurant Source, who can interact and who can, you know, help pass along little pieces of these stories through, you know, improv scenes and something like that. an adventurer's club like atmosphere in right. and around Dino Land. So that, continuing to that sell that story. I think, yeah, I think they need something to sell the story, not necessarily that the story is flawed in and of itself, but that it's present, you know, there needs to be a narrator, there needs to be somebody speaking up for the story. Right, sort of guiding people, because cause that story, right. conti- I mean, the story is found in all the other attractions as well. I mean, you can go into the Boneyard, you know, even as an adult, and I've taken my kids in there, and it certainly is very much lost on them, but that backstory is found throughout the entire land, again, from restaurants to restrooms to souvenir shops to to the boneyard right you even have you you have chester and hester you know and they have their portrait and all their cousins working at the at the gas station but then over at the at restaurant source you could still find the exact same picture of chester and hester hanging on the wall it you know all these pieces do tie together really really nicely yeah and you could almost have the citizens of main street and the citizens of hollywood Mm -hmm. boulevard just as the same way you have the citizens of Dinoland, and you could have right. sort of that interactive street entertainment. Right, and I, and I think, you know, it, just like you get a lot out of even just the way that the, the citizens are on Main Street or the streetmosphere in the studios, just the dress tells you a lot about what you're walking through. Yeah, and I think it very much is meant to be, it is meant to be very whimsical, it's meant to be very fun, it's meant to be a, a playground, and not just for kids, but for adults. The the land itself is meant to be a playground. It's not meant to be taken super seriously. It's meant to be something that's fun. And again, depending on how far down you want to dig, again, pardon the pun, there are many uh, layers to the story to it. And and I like that idea. I like the sort of that idea of the walk around streetmosphere characters there. Yeah, I could say one of the, one of the most fun experiences I've had in Animal Kingdom was I spent half a day literally in Dino Land, just walking around and taking it all in and and playing in the boneyard you know i didn't push any kids out of the way to get the slide i don't care who tells you what <laughs> yeah and you know i i've been told in the past that i, I was crazy when i said that animal kingdom is in fact a, a two-day park and i sort of almost laid out a uh, a way to tour the park because it is it is a, a land in dino land and a park itself is meant to be meandered through it's meant to be wandered through you sort of grab yourself a cold drink and uh, explore the park as opposed to rushing from attraction to attraction and ticking things off a list to see. I think a lot of the overlooked experiences in Disney's Animal Kingdom are things that are not found on a Times Guide or a park map. Absolutely. You go back to Kilimanjaro Safaris, they tell you you're going on a two-week safari. You know, maybe that should be the, you know, not the suggestion for the park. You know, it, it does take the time to actually see these things and to explore these elements and really, really understand what's being what's being presented to you right because when you go under that olden gate bridge it's a, a portal it's one of those portals that imagineers use throughout the park it's used extensively in places like the magic kingdom when you go from land to land something happens to you You are transported somewhere else and that's the the feeling that they have to sort of really convey to guests when they walk under that olden gate bridge that you've now gone sort of back in time uh to a certain degree and you are in this sort of dig site, and there is this overriding storyline that's attached to it. Absolutely. And the bridge, I mean, in the science, and it gives you history right there. And I mean, that's, that's the whole blueprint for what you're, get, you're getting ready to walk into. Absolutely. And listen, I would love to hear 
from listeners about their feelings, their impressions about the dinosaur attraction, about Dino Land in and of itself. Is it really something that's overlooked? Uh, how deep do guests look or how deep do they maybe want to look? Maybe they just want to enjoy the attraction on its face. And if so, is it something that you and your family uh, does every time you go? Is it, a, is, a, is it a one and done or is it something that you guys like to hit each and every time? And like Ryan, play Imagineer for the day. What, if anything, you would you do to change Dinosaur? I keep wanting calling it Countdown to Extinction. But what would you do to change Dinosaur or Dino Land itself? Uh, I'd love for you to come to this week's show notes over at wdwradio.com. Click on this week's uh, podcast link and you can leave your comments and keep the conversation going there. In the show notes, I'll also link back to some of my other podcasts about Disney's Animal Kingdom and where you can find my article in Celebrations Magazine about the history of Disney's Animal Kingdom as well. Ryan Wilson can be found not only in Celebrations Magazine, but more importantly, every single day he is blogging over at MainStreetGazette.com. It's MainStGazette.com. Ryan is one of the very best at sort of digging down into those many layers and helping you appreciate the parks on uh, a lot of different levels as well. I'll certainly link that into the show notes. And Ryan, you got to come back. we got more Wayback Machine segments. We have more DSIs we're looking at. we got to still keep on going some of those opening day Walt Disney World attractions, our Epcot retrospective series. A lot of research ahead for us, my friend. Hey, that, that's fine. Anytime I am ready to go. Awesome. Thank you again for coming on, buddy. Always a pleasure. Flash photography? I wouldn't. It alters the homing beacon, and that's not good. Mission accomplished. You made it! I knew you would, and guess who made it back with you? I'd better find him before security does. Thanks for everything! That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Don't forget to come by and visit the website over at wdwradio.com. There you can not only comment on this week's show, but check out our blog with multiple posts daily, including polls, contests, lots more. You can be part of the conversation with other Disney fans in our free discussion forums. Also check out our videos, lots more again, over at wdwradio.com. While you're there... Be sure and click on the link to find out more and how you can be involved in our five-year anniversary celebration. February 11th is going to mark the five-year anniversary of WDW Radio, and we're looking for your help. We need your photos from various events and meets over the past five years. I want you to come in, weigh in on what you think your top five favorite WDW Radio episodes are, and vote on what we should do in the Magic Kingdom during the five-year anniversary online celebration that we'll be broadcasting live from Walt Disney World starting at 10 a.m. on February 11th at WDW Radio Live. And you can enter now to win a six-night Walt Disney World vacation courtesy of Mouse Fan Travel for four people with dining in our WDW Radio Ultimate Trivia Contest. I'll put the link in the show notes. You can click on the banner on the homepage or visit wdwradio.com slash five, the number five. And if you're going to be in Walt Disney World on February 11th, after our five-hour adventure in the Magic Kingdom, you can come by and join us for our Meet of the Month and sort of little mini WW Radio five-year birthday celebration. It will be Saturday afternoon, February 11th, 
probably about 4.30 or so. Stay tuned to Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and DisneyMeets.com, as well as the five-year anniversary page for exact time and location. And of course, this and every WDW Radio Meet of the Month is open to everyone and anyone. So please come by and say hi and join us on February 11th again after our five-year Magic Kingdom adventure is over. Also, be sure and follow me over on Twitter. I'm at Lou Mangiello. We are Facebook.com slash Lou Mangiello. You can subscribe to the post there. And at Google Plus, I'm at LouMangiello.com slash G plus G-P-L-U-S. You know, I also love hearing from you, so you can call the voicemail 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. Or you can email me with a question you want answered on the show at lou at wdwradio.com. Don't forget, in addition to the podcast and the videos and discussion forums, you can come and join us live every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for the WDW Newscast. You can visit wdwradiolive.com. There you can watch chat, interact, ask and answer questions as we discuss this week's Disney news and then stay on for some time afterwards, sometimes from the parks, sometimes from the studios. Great way to engage and get involved. If you can't make it live, we'll post it on YouTube, in the blog, and post the audio also in iTunes as well. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, of course, Mouse Fan Travel, not only sponsoring and giving away the six-day Walt Disney World vacation with dining again, uh, for four for the ultimate trivia contest, but they are not only who I use, but they're my recommended travel provider for Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Adventures by Disney, and don't forget about our WW Radio cruise aboard the Disney Dream, November 4th through the 8th. There is still availability, but I would suggest if you're interested contacting Mouse Fan Travel, visit www.radiocruise.com for a free, no-obligation quote. When you're coming to Disney World, maybe you want to stay something a little bit larger. You bring the extended family allstarvacationhomes.com has more than 150 homes within just a couple of miles of Walt Disney World and if you want to stay right in the heart of Disney the Swan and Dolphin is one of my favorites the Heavenly Beds, the Mandara Spa Blue Zoo, Il Molino, Shula's and lots more, you can visit them over at swananddolphin.com there is lots more going on and lots more coming I promise you including another surprise coming on February 11th But as always, my friends, if you like the show, and I hope that you do, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share share links to the show on Facebook or Google Plus or your favorite Disney discussion forums. And please come by, rate and review the show over on iTunes. And I want to thank you again for listening this week and for letting me get up every morning with a smile on my face and excited for the day because you let me share my passion for Disney with you. I want you to do the same thing. I want you to be excited about every day. So start pursuing your passion and your dreams. And when you do, always keep moving forward. As always, my friends, and yes, you are my friends, whether you have met yet or not, and I hope to meet you at a meet of the month or in the park soon. Thank you again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. I hope you have an awesome day, a great week, and an even better 2012. So until next time, See ya. Hi, Lou. It's happy. Anyway, just listen to uh, episode uh, 255 about The Rocketeer and uh, reminded me how much I love that movie. I've got to send you my picture of me standing next to The Rocketeer at uh, Disneyland from years ago, uh, back when they had a costume character walking around the park. I just also wanted to offer my uh, coaching help to anybody running in the Tinkerbell half. 
Disney's Princess Half, the Everest Challenge, Disneyland Half, or any other Run Disney event, I can be reached at wdwradiorun at gmail.com. See ya! Hello, you much yellow. This is Robert from South Plainfield, New Jersey, calling you from Orlando International Airport on Sunday, the 29th of January, 2012. Just wanted to uh, let you know, I just spent a week here at uh, the Walt Disney World Resort with family and friends, passing along some updated information, what we saw going on. There was a lot of activity at the Magic Kingdom, all the construction sites, Fantasyland, New Fantasyland is uh, very busy. And the work on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad is very busy, and the work on Main Street is uh, very busy. So they're working very hard at uh, bringing the changes and the updates to the Magic Kingdom. Also wanted to say congratulations on five years of hosting WDW Radio. Uh, I remember when you were on some other podcast before you had WDW Radio. That's how long I've listened to you. And uh, all the tidbits that you've been providing over the years helped make uh, not just this trip, but other trips that many of my family have made to Walt Disney World. Memorable and exciting. So keep up the good work. Uh, congratulations again. And uh, thanks. Bye. Hey, Lou. Jen Tremley from Bristol, Connecticut. Just wanted to say hi. And I just finished listening to this week's show, 256, about the Rocketeer. Very, very cool show. Um, I've been a Disney fan pretty much all my life. And I have to admit that I have never, ever seen the movie of the Rocketeer. Um, I'm very interested in it. And I actually have it in my Netflix queue. Um, and most likely I probably will go out and buy it and add it to my collection once I see it. Um, I always thought when it first came out that it was kind of a boy flick. I hate to say it, you know, space and all that stuff. But now listening to the podcast um, with you and Jim um, and, you know, really kind of going through the history a little bit on it, um, it really definitely uh, seems like a movie that I would like, and I can't wait to see it. So I'm definitely going to move it up in my queue uh, on Netflix and, and get uh, to watching that as soon as possible. Um, I do. I, I am aware of some of the references at the studios, um, such as Peavy's Polar Pipeline and, and stuff like that. And I was, um, back in the day when we visited the park since I started going in 86, um, I was, um, you know, also remember seeing some of the Rocketeer uh, prop displays and stuff like that. Again, I just wasn't very familiar at the time or very, um, you know, uh, knowledgeable about the movie because I never really had an interest in it. But now that I'm older and I love all things Disney, I'm really um, looking forward to looking back on this and really, um, you know, getting to know the movie and then going back to Disney and taking a look at these things that are still there so I can get a better understanding and a better, you know, perspective on them. But great podcast, as always. You and Jim always knock it out of the park, um, especially with the history stuff. So great, great, great week and, um, uh, excuse me, great show this week. And I also just wanted to comment real quick about the One More Disney Day promotion. I heard a bunch of other listeners calling in this past week on the voicemail. Um, I am, you know, I think it's pretty cool. Um, unfortunately, I will not be down there or have the ability to get down there for Leap Day. So, unfortunately, I won't be able to participate in the 24-hour parks being open. But I am participating in the sweepstakes. Hopefully, I'll be one of those lucky winners. And uh, um, I'm hoping maybe they'll extend it or do something else for the rest of us that can't book a package before Leap Day. Um, but um, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm hoping to go in September, so I, I think it's a great promotion. They always have something new every year, and I'm, I'm glad to see that they're actually going to keep the parks open for a full 24 hours. I'm sure a lot of people are going to take advantage of that, and um, I think it's a great idea. So in any, event, uh, in any event, have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou. Glenn from Alabama. Just now got around to listening to the uh, show about the musical attractions in in uh, Epcot 
World Showcase and Future World both. And there was one that I thought I'd throw out that wasn't mentioned. It's um, uh, and it may not be there anymore. Uh, Tutto Italia uh, may have been uh, rehabbed since I was there about two years ago. Uh, I'm sorry, three years ago. But with you, when we went and ate at Tutto Italia, uh, a little three-piece. Uh, band came around while we were eating, and they were playing Italian music, as you kind of see in in the in in the films. I'm live in a small town, so we don't get out much here. But uh, that was a little a nice little musical group there that came around, and um, I believe one may may have been uh, playing a violin, one playing a, a guitar, and perhaps an accordion. I, I'm not sure, but I do remember a three piece group coming around to the tables and and serenading each table uh, just a little bit at a time. But that was a nice touch. But I um, thought I would just uh, throw that in there as as one that uh, was was overlooked. Uh, like I said, don't know if it's still there or not anymore. But love the show. Happy holidays. Bye. You've got a friend in me. Yeah.